From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. I have to tell you, uh, I'm still reeling from my uh, conversation with Dan Ritten last night on uh, Coast to Coast. Uh, Dan is the host of the Daily Planet on uh, Discovery Canada, and he's uh, a biologist. He loves bats, vampire bats in particular. Uh, so I'm not sure if you caught Coast last night, but Dan has this new book out called Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You. And in it, he sort of pokes around into the uh, the dark side of the animal world. Uh, so much, you know, that we, when we when we uh, we hear about nature and and uh, the animal kingdom, there's a lot of anthropomorphizing going on, and aren't animals all wonderful? And isn't nature grand? And if we could only get back to the garden and so forth, well, Dan sort of lays that bare in this book. I mean, he loves nature, and he, and he's totally turned on by you know even the darker realms of the animal kingdom, but. We had uh, uh, three hours kicking around uh, some pretty amazing conversations about. Well, we talked about. We talked at length about the mating habits of spiders, if you can believe it, and uh, how the female usually ends up eating the male during copulation. And we talked about forced copulation in the animal kingdom, in the duck world. I mean, how else can I describe it? There is, again, this is anthropomorphizing. It's it's called forced forced copulation, but it's kind of a rape culture in the duck world. And uh, now I'm thinking, you know, I'll never look at a, a male duck again the same way. They are not the cute little, adorable little, uh, you know, the Affleck duck or goose that we see on TV. And to think, you know, when we go to those, we come to those duck crossings and I, I, I slam on the drake, uh, on the brakes when uh, whenever a duck crosses the road. And now I'm asking myself, why am I doing that? Those Male ducks are real SOBs. <laughs> and don't get me started on what happens to the, form, the, uh, the poor female bed bug during copulation. It's heartbreaking. Yes, pity the female bed bug. Uh, I'm going to get Dan Riskin on this program uh, real soon. Uh, season 3 of the Conspiracy Show television program of, is, of course, well underway. Monday nights on Vision TV, 10 p.m. Eastern. And our next episode, The Water Engine, Stanley Meyer. Uh, posted several YouTube videos a number of years ago, which appeared to show him operating an internal combustion engine on just water. And in fact, he claimed his water engine uh, powered a dune buggy across the United States. And then, of course, Stanley Myers died quite suddenly and under rather mysterious circumstances, and some say he was assassinated by agents working for Big Oil. So that's this week's episode the water engine and after you don't uh, and after you watch it don't forget to log on to theconspiracyshow.com which is our interactive web- website where you can discuss debate vote and uh, good news we're uh, the conspiracy show television program now in the US season 1 is now being televised in about 110 markets in the US and it's growing and we're getting some terrific response down there uh, in fact just got some results some data we're number one in Albuquerque and number two in Houston in our time slot. Very quickly, I also want to mention our good friend, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, a remote viewer, intuitive, uh, medical intuitive, uh, Canada's Edgar Casey, no stranger to this program. He was just on, was it last week or the week before? He's got a miracle transforma- transformation event happening Saturday, October the 4th. That's coming up uh, this uh, next weekend. Uh, Saturday, October 4, 1.30 to 5 p.m. in the Wellesley Room, Holiday Inn, downtown Toronto. The Wellesley Room, Holiday Inn, Saturday, October the 4th, 1.30 to 5. And that's 30 Carlton Street in Toronto between Young and Church. And uh, here's the number. If you want to pre-register, you call 905 905- Three nine three five one zero four nine oh five three nine three five one zero four miracle transformation event on our good friend Dr. Douglas James Cottrell. All right, we are uh, going to talk paranormal for the next hour and how, and it may be the most notorious and most terrifying poltergeist haunting of recent decades. It's called the Bridgeport Poltergeist, and it was seen and heard, seen and heard by thousands of people on one 
unforgettable, uh, unforgettable day back in 1974. And one of the local youngsters who was sort of following the remarkable events unfold as it was covered by the local media was uh, a then 10-year-old uh, boy by the name of William J. Hall. And he remembers every detail, and who wouldn't? And uh, William would uh, grow up to become a magician and a well-known investigator of the paranormal and the unexplained. In fact, he... Uh, he wrote a syndicated column on those very subjects for many years in Connecticut. And Bill Hall is with us tonight to share never-before-reported interviews of the first responders and other witnesses and previously unrevealed documents and reports. And it's all detailed in a journalistic new book entitled The World's Most Haunted House, The True Story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. Bill Hall, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Delight to have you with us. So take us back, 1974, you were 10 years old. Now, first of all, how, how, how big a town is Bridgeport? It's a good-sized city. I, I, you know, it's nowhere near uh, anything like Chicago or anything like that. So I'd probably put it in the mid-sized uh, range. And this was a, uh, a very tiny house uh, downtown. So, and, and did you know of the house pr prior to to the events that unfolded on that 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 day in 1974? Had you passed by the house? Was there were there rumors about this house prior to the news coverage? No, not at all. No, the first uh, many of us heard of it was, uh, of course, on TV uh, as the story not only hit locally but then soon uh, virtually went around the world. I mean, Israel, Japan. Australia, uh, you know, Canada, <laughs> in, in your backyard, I mean, everywhere. Um, uh, so it was one of those stories that just got uh, so much more public and spread so much farther than these things uh, usually ever do. It was kind of like the Roswell of haunted houses, if you will. Right. So you're 10 years old at the time. Take us back and, and uh, the, the circumstances under which you, you, you saw the news coverage and, and became involved in this story. Well, uh, you know, when I was, there's two parts to it. When I was 10, um, you know, I saw it on TV and I, I asked my dad, you know, is it real? And he said no. And, and that was kind of the end of it for me. You know, I was, of course, uh, fascinated by it, but that, that was about it. And uh, many years later, even when I was writing uh, the news column, uh, Magic and the Unknown, I, I by then I had kind of forgotten about it and didn't really, uh, never really looked into it in any sort of depth um, until uh, I was having my coffee, doing what every intellectual does, reading the Wall Street News. Uh, it might have been Facebook, though. Uh, yeah, it was Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Wall Street Journal sounds better. Let's go with that. I know. I know, right? Yeah. Um, and somebody said, do you re does anybody remember? It was on one of those community papers, uh, in the community fan pages. Does anybody remember the haunted house on Lindley Street? And that's when it occurred to me, geez, I never really looked into this thing, you know. Um, and so I went online and started looking into it. And after about 50 newspaper articles, I was convinced that uh, no matter what happened, real or not, that there had to be a heck of a, uh, a story in here was least worthy of investigating. So that's when I wrote down all the names of all the people mentioned in the paper, uh, police officers, firefighters, you know, reporters, uh, neighbors, onlookers, you know, all the people that were mentioned, priests. And uh, that's when I started calling. Of course, many of them no longer with us, but uh, I happened upon rather quickly, in fact, uh, police officer Joe Tomic, who was uh, a first responding police officer, and uh, uh, after interrogating me like he was back on the job, <laughs> we, uh, you know, he he opened up and actually told me some things that he never confided uh, in the police report or the news back then. And uh, he had mentioned that he was forced to be uh, interviewed after it was called a hoax. Uh, a few days later, after it really hit, you know, uh, big time in the press. And uh, he said, you know, I don't know why they forced, set up a conference room at the police department. They forced us to be interviewed. And and there was a big, big uh, 
big investigation. He said, if you can find those people who did that, he said, uh, then you'll find out what really happened. Okay, so and, let's take us back to that day, Bill. Uh, for, and yeah. This is 40 years ago. This is half a lifetime ago. And there are people listening who have no idea what happened in, in 1974 in, in uh, Bridgeport. So how were the news, the, as the news reports were coming out, what were they saying? What happened on Lindley Street? Uh, well, the uh, the high level uh, overview of it was uh, it was a, uh, a tiny little house, 738 square feet, uh, real tiny, and it was uh, mother and father, Laura and Jerry Gooden, and uh, their little daughter uh, Marcy, who was 10. And um, when they had all this activity happen, uh, they ended up on the porch hysterical, and they ended up. Uh, getting the attention of their neighbor and good friend who also was a Bridgeport police officer who came over and saw cheers opening and closing and, and some crazy things happening. And he didn't know what to do, so he called for backup. He was off duty at the time. Sorry, and let me ju- just jump in. You said chairs opening and closing. You mean like recliners? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, those heavy 1970 recliners were opening opening and closing uh in the living room on their own and uh as well as some other things like the refrigerator moving and and uh so of course he was yeah he thought they were broken into when he first went in there uh and he didn't know what to do so he called for backup and four police officers came in two cars they didn't know what to do so they called the fire department the fire department came uh actually it was 12 firemen that came to a 10 firemen, two chiefs. They came. They didn't know what to do, so they called the chaplain at the fire department, and uh, they went and got the priest and brought him there. And uh, and he basically told them something evil's here, something's not right. And, and so it just kept escalating. And, of course, then as word gets out, uh, you know, between picking it up on the radio, on the radio and the – and all of the uh, the people start gathering with all these police cars and fire engines. And then, of course, word quickly gets around with all these witnesses seeing things. Yeah, then it's and pandemonium. It's- Listen, Bill, we're going to take a time out. Stay put. We'll uh, come back sure. on the other side. Continue to delve into the true story of the Bridgeport poltergeist on Lindley Street. William J. Hall was then 10 years old, but he's now documented... Never before reported interviews of the first responders and other witnesses and previously unrevealed documents in a new book, The World's Most Haunted House, back with more on The Conspiracy Show, right here. My name is Richard Serrett. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Oh, also, I wanted to mention... If you go to followthetruth.tv, our website for the uh, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit happening November the 16th in Oshawa, hosted by yours truly, we've posted, as we do every week, a special question on that website. Again, followthetruth.tv, find that question. Do a little research, won't take you long. Come up with the answer to that question and call Tim, my producer here in studio, 416-360-360. 0740-416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. If you've got the answer, you'll walk away with a pair of tickets uh, to Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. In fact, we'll take the first two callers with the correct answer. You'll each win a pair. Okay, back with uh, William Hall, the author of The World's Most Haunted House. And we're talking about uh, this poltergeist activity that, that uh, took the world by storm back in 1974. Thousands of witnesses, independent witnesses, saw furniture flying around in this tiny little house on Lindley Street in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, the owners, Gerard and Cora Goodwin, uh, Gooden, rather. Um, William, give us some insights into who these these people were, because this just wasn't one sort of isolated incident. There, I mean, there were repeated calls for for help from this couple, correct? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, the uh, Laura and Jerry only called the police uh, in 1971 and 72. 
it was um, it, it, they called their friends when, when this stuff really started, and um, and then got the attention of the neighbor, uh, you know, the police officer uh, John Holsworth, who he ended up calling for backup, as well as the friends called the police. So the Goodens actually never called the police. Um, uh, the uh, famous ghost hunters from the uh, the Conjuring fame. Now uh, the Warrens were also called in, not by the Goodens again, but by uh, by a neighbor. So um, they really didn't know what to do other than call their close friends. But uh, they really were uh, kind of the uh, kind of the perfect couple as far as uh, you know their integrity and everything. They were they were middle aged at the time. Jerry was an altar boy. He was a Boy Scout leader when he had no children of his own. Uh, they were just known to be good salt-of-the-earth people. He was a maintenance man at the, the factory. You know, just not a head-in-the-clouds kind of guy at all. They didn't believe, even believe in anything supernatural or paranormal. They, they didn't. Of course, as this stuff went on, they obviously had to face it and and had all sorts of uh, theories and questions, just trying to find out what it was. But so the, the you know that's uh, who the family were as people. They were just uh, known to be generous, uh, down to earth, and uh, you know not the kind of people would get involved in any any sort of uh, uh, hoax or anything like that. Which of course. Uh, everyone knew it it wasn't, especially the numerous police officers that were in and out of the house as well as others. Now, were news crews on the scene able to capture any of this poltergeist activity, this furniture flying around on on film? Uh, No. um, There were news people that witnessed it happen, but, uh, you know, the the stuff really kind of happened – uh, very quickly. Uh, so there was a Bridgeport Post reporter there. There, of course, radio people there that, you know, that, that wouldn't apply there. But, uh, there were TV stations there that, uh, you know, interviewed the family and, and that kind of thing a little bit. Some, some they let in. They didn't like the publicity, but, but because it was already there, uh, they were, they did want to get the word out that they weren't crazy. You know, that was kind of, <laughs> that was kind of the mission of that because, you know, now they're this center of attention here. Um, and the fact that it's no, being witnessed by, you know, thousands of people. So are onlookers on the street able to see this poltergeist activity from their vantage point on the street or are, are strangers traipsing through their house watching this stuff? Uh, there were p- people who uh, saw it on the street, uh, particularly not only through through the windows, but uh, there were the t- these two cement planter swans that they had on their porch uh, that were seen uh, moving on their own accord uh, by a number of people in the uh, in the crowd there. Um, and there's a lot of people who walk away telling that story and of course I came came upon some of those witnesses as well as the police would complain that the swans were making these guttural sounds which I'm sure the swans weren't making it but you know how you attribute uh, the audio phenomena to whatever is uh, closest nearby so um, so but they the swans were a big thing that they saw as well as uh, you know, some of them, of course, did look through the window. Actually, some of them did try to go in the, every once in a while, somebody would try to go in the house or even get by the police and then they'd have to be escorted out. So it really got, uh, to be a crazy mess with all those people. I mean, that, that must have caused, one would, would, would think pandemonium, like mass hysteria. If you're sitting there watching this, you know, uh, these stone sculptures uh, moving around of their own accord and making these guttural sounds and furniture flying around, I mean, that must have caused mass hysteria. Yeah, I mean, there were arrest maids. They had dogs there and uh, paddy wagon, patrol cars, police. They had the barricade, the road closed. Uh, it was really crazy. and And then it really... Uh, you know, when the superintendent, uh, uh, the police force there at the time went, it cul- really culminated to head when, uh, three guys tried to burn the house down while the family was in it. And that's when, 
you know, the hoax story came out after that. Yeah, they said we, we've got a with all this stuff going on, they had feared that uh, they were already making arrests, but they had feared that this thing was just something really bad was going to happen. It was already, of course, making the uh, superintendent look bad with all these police resources and these people. And, you know, the longer it goes on, the more people come. And, you know, from farther away they come and, you know, the more news media comes. And, of course, once Associated Press and, you know, Rudders was there, it was – uh, it was game over, so to speak, you know. So. And, and, and how were the, the major news gathering organizations handling this story? Was it, uh, with sort of a tongue in cheek treatment or was it, uh, were they, they covering it seriously? Uh, they ultimately covered it seriously, but they, uh, but most of them went into it with a tongue in cheek, uh, attitude until they got in and realized what was, Going on, um, two guys from WNEB radio, local radio station at the time, went in and they thought they were going to have a good old time with it, and um, they were going to take some interviews, and it was just going to be a real fun thing. And about five minutes after, um, you know, one of the guys said, "I, I you know, in the in the transcript, in the uh, testimony that he gave, he said, you know." We never took our recorders out. We left the house. We said we had absolutely nothing to do a story on. We didn't know if we even wanted to do a story. So a lot of the press, that's how they were reacting. Another uh, reporter was in there from the newspaper, and, and he saw a thing of dishes fly across and make a turn on the counter. And, you know, it shocked him greatly, and, and he felt really bad for the family. So... They were having difficulty with this uh, job of uh, having to report this, and of course, uh, you know, at, back at the station and and the uh, and the newspaper offices, they of course wanted to make it entertaining, sensationalized, and all that stuff. And these uh, reporters were really facing the fact that this was a really serious uh, situation with people who are really suffering. So uh, that's a good question. They did go into it with that kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, approach. Approach and then quickly realize that uh, that this really was uh, a you know sad and difficult situation. And, and I understand that several police reported police now the police are reporting seeing the kitchen refrigerator rise about a foot off the floor, and others said they they witnessed a 21 inch portable TV set float above a table, then rotate clockwise in the air. Have you corroborated that? Yes. Uh, and, you know, that's the amazing thing about this case is the documentation from the investigation is so uh, is so unheard of because uh, some of these things that were witnessed by three or four police officers, as well as firefighters, each of them were interviewed separately uh, describing. So you'd have six or seven people describing the same event separately, uh, not only on audio, but also with the positions of where everybody was in the room uh, written down on an incident sheet, one incident sheet for every incident um, that uh, anyone gave in, you know, an, an interview or testimony on. So the kind of documentation in this case was unheard of. But, yeah, the refrigerator floated. That was uh, seen by four policemen as well as uh, others. I mean, priests, uh, priests saw it happen. The young seminarian Paulino, who's there, saw the refrigerator float. Um, uh, electrical inspector and uh, a, a plumbing inspector that was called into the house because, of course, they were checking for all the usual things. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, they they saw and you know, the police didn't run away i mean they tipped the fridge they looked under they looked on top one went to the basement looked at the ceiling you know they really tried to you know come to grips with this you know this unknown uh, things happening um as a 10 year old as it sorry bill as a 10 year old did you go by the house do you remember no i did not no uh and you know i really would have no way to unless my Parents drove me by it, and my dad was not, uh, you know, he just was not open to that kind of thing. Uh, matter of fact, I have to commend him because he's reading my book, so which is a big stretch for him. <laughs> he's, he's actually, yeah, he's actually entertaining that this thing may be true just because of all he's heard about it, you know, from me because I played him some of the things, and I said, well, yeah, listen to this, <laughs> listen to this interview, and 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 he is uh, he is at least fast. 
fascinated by it. And, you know, that's the most I, I can ask because yep. he's, of course. It was was know, it the not, idea that the, the police got together and decided that they're going to they're going to declare this as a hoax simply because they wanted to calm everybody down? Because, as you say, there were people trying to burn this house to the ground with the family inside. Is that what happened? Well, it's it's interesting what happened. It, it uh, an inspector was brought into the case very late in the game, Inspector Clark, by the superintendent, and the superintendent told the inspector, "You need to shut this down." You know that was the instruction. You know, I don't care how you need to shut it down. Got to stop. Uh, meanwhile, Tuesday morning. So this, uh, these events happened as far as publicly. I mean, they were going on before that, but publicly, it, it was a Sunday and a Monday was the, were the two days that were really heavy activity, as well as uh, the media was involved at that point in November, Tuesday, November of seventy four. In November of seventy four, yes, thank you. And uh, Tuesday morning, when uh, they were having some activity, and they called the the police outside, please come help us. Um, and they called for some other backup. And those officers that went in the house, uh, they saw Marcy. Marcy was on the uh, there was a TV on the on the carpet in the living room. Um, this is their adopted you know, child. Sorry, this is their adopted child, the, right? Marcy yeah. is the adopted child of the uh, of the Goodens. Yes, who's ten years old uh, at the time, and um, and she sticks her foot out and and uh, hits the TV and it it uh, spins, and um, police officer saw her do it and said, "Aha!" And uh, that was the beginning of. Uh, you know, all the the police at the very beginning suspected the child because, I mean, that does happen that sometimes the parents can't see or they don't believe it's their own child. But then when an outsider comes in, it's very, you know, it's very easy to see that it's, you know, the child doing that kind of stuff. These guys who were in the house did not see any of the activity that occurred before. So this is the first time they were in the house. So um and they saw Marcy do that. And then. Marcy was pretending to make uh, her cat talk, which really didn't fool anybody. But there were all these reports of uh, of the cat talking, too, which, again, was the audio phenomenon. I don't believe the cat was talking. There were voices. There was footsteps. There was banging on the wall. You know, there were all these things going on. And so they said, OK, well, Marcy did the, you know, the ventriloquism with the cat. She kicked the TV and she must have thrown the things off you know, the pictures off the wall and stuff. They didn't have to get into detail, you know, because uh, they didn't know what happened before and they really weren't interested because, you know, again, if I was them and I walked into what they did and saw only what they saw, you know, that would be your natural conclusion. So, you need, you know, and then they reported that back to Inspector Clark, who knew it was real. I mean, he had all the all the uh, the test, the witnesses and the police reports and he had all that stuff on his desk. He knew it was real and he didn't know what the heck to do with it with the case. Um, and he gets this call from uh, the guys on the scene saying, hey, we saw Marcy kick the TV. And he said, ah, he's thinking to himself, this is a. Opportun- this is an opportunity here, um, you know, where I can do something with this and close the case. So they blamed it on Marcy and uh, called it case closed. And in fact, that inspector told uh, one of the uh, investig- paranormal investigators after uh, Jerry Sulfan from Duke University said, I'm sorry, Jerry, you know, I, I did the best I could with what I had. I, you know, I had to close it down. All right, listen, uh, uh, Bill. I gotta, I gotta uh, take a break here. So, we'll uh, oh, sure. we'll pick up on that when we come back. We'll discover that this activity did seem to start right about the time that uh, the Goodens adopted this Marcy after the death of their own son. We'll uh, get into all of that and much more as we discuss the world's most haunted house: the true story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. William J. Hall, my guest, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Where there's smoke. There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. William J. Hall is with us, the author of The World's Most Haunted House, talking about this remarkable, horrifying poltergeist activity witnessed by thousands, including police, firemen, and other first responders. At this little tiny house on Lindley Street, and the center of this poltergeist activity may have been centered around a 10-year-old adopted girl by the name of Marcia 
who was actually a native girl from Canada. So there's your Canadian connection. And she was adopted by the Goodens after the family er, lost their their son, who I believe was uh, seven years old at the time. Now, so this activity began after they adopted Marcia. I understand about a year earlier, she was around nine. She was home from school for about six weeks because of a back injury. And that's when this all started. Is that right, William? Well, it uh, it actually started in 1968, uh, shortly after they adopted Marcy, and she was about four and a half then. But it was very, uh, you know, very slow, uh, simmering kind of things, like uh, the chair being in the wrong place. Uh, you know, the, the things out of the corner of your eye. Nothing is is a big activity like what happened later, and uh, and and then in what really started it all was every November they had these banging sounds on the inside and outsides of the walls. And um, it started in 1971. And in 1972, their police officer friend, uh, Officer Holsworth, across the street suggested, why don't we record these sounds so that maybe uh, the police or civil engineers can figure out, you know, what they're from. So they recorded those sounds. And that tape was given to Ed Warren, um, and then Ed gave it to Boyce Beatty, the lead investigator on the Lindley Street case, and Boyce gave it to me. So, And those sounds are actually in the bonus section of the book where you can access and hear those sounds for yourself. So those sounds is, is what really started it. But you're right as far as the, the big activities started after Marcy was for about a year, she was picked on every day at school because of her olive skin. As you said, she's you know Native American, and then um, she got beat up uh, in the cafeteria at school by a boy, and was home for about six weeks with her overbearing mother, who was very sheltering of Marcy because their little boy who died at age six that uh, you had mentioned uh, couldn't walk or talk or anything. He had cere- cere- cerebral palsy and um, so they they were kind of bringing Marcy up in the same kind of way. They were afraid she was going to get killed, and and meanwhile Marcy's very introverted, withdrawn to begin with. So all of this, you know, enters your your basic uh, you know poltergeist situation and within the tension in the family and the young girl, and and so uh, but that culminated in her six weeks of being at home, and uh, and after that. It, after that period is when it really picked up into uh, into that explosion of activity. You mentioned a seminary student who uh, was there and witnessed some of these things, and, and this uh, seminary student apparently performed the rituals of exorcism at the house, and uh, there was a 22-page report prepared. And in that report, uh, I mean, we could spend three hours just talking about what's in that report. Uh, there's made mention of a plastic crucifix that exploded from a wall in front of witnesses, and then this one. This is the one that sends the uh, the shivers up my spine. The family cat sang jingle bells in a frightening, inhuman voice. Have you been able to get a corroboration on that aspect of the story? Yeah, that actually was from uh, Father uh, Charbonneau, uh, a priest that uh, arrives with the Warrens and Paulino. And... Um, he had heard that as well as uh, the Warrens, but there were many people, including police officers, that heard the audio phenomena uh, and had attributed it to the uh, to the cat. But um, the uh, there was uh, let's see, there was a part I wanted to correct from something you said, and now I can't remember what it was. <laughs> was it about the plastic crucifix, or I oh, mentioned a plastic um, crucifix exploding? I mentioned. Uh, and there was no exorcism uh, uh, ever done. Uh, but I believe in the police report there was, uh, I think they said something about somebody had the power to perform exorcism. And that and that was um, all that was done, ever done there was, uh, you know, a house blessing, uh, just to clarify that. Good. Okay. And, and that, you know, they tried to get one, but, of course, that was the kind of thing that once it got so public, uh, you know, the church didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Sure. Now, uh, when you're talking, when you're hunting down these first responders now, all these years later, 40 years later, were they, he- did they want to talk about it? Were they hesitant? Did, is this something that they wanted to forget about? Um, 
you know, I was amazed that uh, there only was one uh, one police officer who refused to uh, talk about it. And um, I had heard from his brother that, you know, it really, really affected him and he really didn't want to, uh, you know, to go public again about it. He did talk about it back then. And I, you know, I had his, his interview from, you know, 74, but he didn't want to really talk again. Um, his, uh, a guy, the, the guy at Barnes and Noble did told me his daughter came in and bought the book for him. So I guess he decided he did want to read and find out, uh, everything that happened that was outside of course, when he was there, but, uh, other than that, I, w- I was amazed that everybody really was uh, uh, quite cooperative. Uh, Joe T- Officer Joe Tomic uh, took a few phone calls to, you know, to warm up, and he shared more and more as, the more I talked to him, and then finally sent me the pl- the original police report that uh, that appears in the book. Um, but yeah, I was surprised that people were so receptive. And for some, it uh, changed their life forever. For others, they said, "Oh, they don't really think about it that much." It was, <laughs> you know, the way people are. It's, it is amazing because it's not like in the horror movies, people react with a, with a whole range of uh, emotions, uh, and most of them were trying to, uh, you know, discover what it was. Um, you know, trying to deal with the unknown part of it, but. Uh, you know, some of the most shocking things to me are the different ways that the the entities appeared. And I'd like to play a real short audio, if that's okay. We'll do that uh, when we come back, uh, Bill. Ah, okay. And uh, I'll also get you to uh, talk about maybe some of the more revelatory uh, interviews or conversations you had with some of these first responders all these years later. Forty years. Coming up, actually. Forty years after the poltergeist activity in Bridgeport, Connecticut on Lindley Street. William J. Hall is here to tell all in his explosive new book, The World's Most Haunted House. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. Or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Bill Hall stays with us, the author of The World's Most Haunted House, going back 40 years to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and some absolutely horrifying uh, poltergeist activity, uh, much of it witnessed by thousands of people, police, firemen, other first responders. You had a piece of audio you wanted to share with us, uh, William. First, set that up. What, what is this audio about? Um, this is uh, Paul Eno uh, was one of the one of the few surviving uh, major witnesses to this case, and um, he actually had an encounter with the entities. Uh, actually, had a shoving match uh, with them. There was uh, four of them. And they were these gauzy like uh, figures, and he described to me like that you can see them kind of like you see uh, when you light a match and you see that blurry uh, you can see the the blurry uh, section above the match. It was kind of, kind of of that nature. And he was a 21 year old seminary student at the time, and his job was to watch Marcy uh, for two reasons. One is to protect her. And in the beginning to find out if she was, you know, doing these things, which, of course, they quickly figured out it wasn't her. And uh, this encounter with this uh, entity really changed Paul's view of it. He had the old school uh, demonology view of these things until he actually um, felt it. And it started um, changing his viewpoint that he didn't think uh that it was enough to really explain it. So I just want to play his uh, interview when I connect it with him as he uh, shares uh, an encounter that he had not shared back in 74. He actually didn't talk about it for for about 35 years. So uh, here it is. It's relatively short, but I think it's a a nice uh, snippet here. I think the people uh, these things are supposed to be spirits that we believe they were demons, but the demons have a 
mean, I don't even bone structures. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not a biologist. I couldn't really identify it. It was almost bird-like. The thing got around me and, you know, threw the kid across the room. So Paul had felt uh, anatomy and bone structure in this thing, uh, like he says, almost bird-like, these thin bones, and it really uh, threw him for a loop with everything he was taught, um, you know, about uh, considering them as uh, as demons. Um, but they were malevolent. I mean, these things were malevolent. They wanted to do harm. Well, and... I wouldn't say that they're that they're positives, certainly, um, but I, and and we could even say they're negative. I, I don't know if I would say that they're. And of course, it's you know, anybody's guess because obviously there's uh, you know a number of theories out there. But um, you know we don't really know uh, you know what their what their motives were. I mean, we can say. That, uh, you know, in picking up and throwing Marcy that, uh, obviously they're, they're evil or negative. But because there's energies involved here, uh, we really don't know. We don't know if something's a reaction to something, but those actions do seem very deliberate and, like you said, malevolent. Um, I try to think of all possibilities. Um, but I, I don't know if you can say they're pure evil. It, uh, fair enough, you know, fair enough. But uh, why why on earth? Especially with the crowd. Sure. <laughs> especially with what the crowd was doing. Sure. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh yeah, who who are the who's the perpetrating the evil here? Huh? The, but but why would the Gooden stay in that house? Well, you know, they they did a lot of things that that you would do uh in that situation. So um the first night, for example, they they had their friend police officer John Holsworth stay overnight with them. Uh, there was another night that they were there that there was just a house full of people. So a lot of times they weren't alone. There were other times where, I mean, it came to a point where they had a bag packed and, uh, you know, they had kind of a new normal where they had a bag packed and, and when things were bad in the house, they would go over, uh, you know, to, to stay with family um, there were other times that they would decide to stay at the house and just have Marcy go stay with family. Um, so, so they really kind of mixed it up depending on what was going on in the house. Uh, they were told by, uh, the Warrens and Father Charbonneau, uh, that the way the pol poltergeist operates, that if they did move, uh, this would follow them. So. What, what happened to Marcy? Uh, what happened to Marcy? Where is she now? Well, as far as we know, uh, she's, she was okay as, and we don't know what okay means, but, uh, she was at least alive <laughs> and okay as of a few years ago. Um, and that confirmation comes from, uh, one of the witnesses who was actually a Boy Scout when Jerry was the Boy Scout leader and the assistant, uh, Boy Scout leader was, uh, uh, was this gentleman's uh, father. And, uh, anyhow, uh, this guy, Dennis, his brother was very close to Jerry and he told him, uh, about Marcy's status, but, uh, uh, he's dead now. So, you know, of course he can't ask him what okay means. And at the time when it came up, he wasn't, uh, of course, concerned enough to go into details. So, but nobody knows you know, no where she is. No one knows where she is. Well, we're told she's in Canada, so it's your job to find her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I would gladly take that on. All right. That's my assignment. Well, well, that because she was from Canada, that she's, it's quite possible she may be, you know, with the tribe there or, you know, something like that. So, I mean, I did hire a private invest, uh, investigation firm to uh, try to find her. So we know she's not in the U.S., from what I hear, Canadian records are a bit different, so it's um, you know it's a little bit tougher and more expensive to track down. And sure, you know, not not that I think she'd want to talk, but it would have been nice to say, okay, you know, she's okay or she has a family, sure, or, you know, sure. whatever. You know. How, how long did the Goodens stay in the house? Um, they actually lived there the rest of their lives because what happened is after the phenomena had uh, settled, uh, they did try to sell the house. Uh, even though there was no more phenomena and it wasn't because they were scared the phenomena was going to come back. But after, after, uh, the entities were 
dis, you know, dissipate it and the activity stopped, they still didn't want to stay there because of the, uh, the people. You know, uh, it was, uh, constant ridicule at work. It was, uh, tire slashing and, uh, you know, the mirror on the car breaking and clothes being pulled off the line and, you know, it's just, uh, people were just really tormenting them and they wanted to get out of the city, but they tried to sell the house and couldn't. Uh, probably more likely because of the size versus what happened there. <laughs> you know, you usually can find somebody who wants to buy a, you know, a house that had that kind of activity. There's but, a huge uh, market. There is a surprisingly yeah. huge market for that sort of thing. Now, I don't know if there was back in the 70s, but, um, you know, when you have a house that's 738 square feet, that's a tough sell no matter what happened. And, you know, they wanted, uh, I think it was $31,000 for it. And it ended up selling in the year 2000 for, I think, 21. So, you know, they they had their money into, in it, so they had to get a certain amount, and they just couldn't sell it. So instead, they painted the house and got rid of the swans and, you know, sure. tried to at least disguise it. Instead of disguising it, the new look hit the newspaper. So, you know, but, right. uh, and, but that's why they ended up staying there, you know. Now, I, I've just got a couple of minutes here. Uh Bill, so many things, so much to cover, so little time. You, you're a trained magician. So as yeah. a trained magician, I mean, were you going into the story trying to maybe prove that it was a hoax, knowing how, you know, some of these effects could be, could be manipulated, could be, uh, could be manufactured? Yeah, I was thinking it, it would, I was thinking it most likely was not real. I mean, I was open to it, but that was my thought. Um, and luckily, the interviews were done with such detail um, that I had the detail I needed in order to understand completely what they saw, not just what they interpreted that they saw, but, you know, exactly what they viewed. And, you know, because in the newspapers, you know, you hear a refrigerator floated and that's what they perceive happened. But you don't you don't hear the play by play of, you know, what they actually saw, what lifted up first. How did it react? Did it shake? Was there rumbling? Was there sound? You know, all the questions. Sure. That, and was there, you was know, there, that voice. Was there a moment when, whether it was during an interview with one of these first responders that, uh, that you can recall thinking to yourself, Oh my God, this was real. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of the most compelling testimony was by, um, Father Charbonneau, you know, being a, priest and describing, you know, the formation of a shadowy figure um, is really compelling. Uh, but I must say it really was uh, it really was the count compounding effect of hearing uh, police officer after police, you know, eight hours of police officer interviews. And uh, after you hear so much of it, it uh, I think the I guess like synergy, you know, the total really, uh, was, was over, was overflowing with evidence, but it took about 20 hours. I remember it being about at the 20 hour mark of listening to these interviews that I was at the 150%, you know, it's real mark. Cause uh, a lot of it, you're like, well, it sounds good. Nothing tells me it's a hoax, but you're still not quite sure you need more and more and more. And then finally hit the mark and say, okay, well, I heard eight hours of police interviews and I heard all these firemen. I heard the priest. And, and then it gets to a point where it's just, there's no question, especially I, with the type of things that happen. So how did this, uh, how did it all end? I mean, how, when, when did the, the poltergeist activity stop and, and, and under what circumstances? Well, as I've learned, most of these things stop when uh, some sort of peace and routine is restored to the family. So uh, when uh, Marcy was able to return to school, but a different school, she returned to uh, Catholic school, uh, which was not the rough kind of school that she was in before when she was beat up. Once she got back to school and got in her routine and was happier herself, and uh, that's when uh, the activity dissipated, and uh, never returned. And uh, like I said, the family still tried to sell the house, couldn't, but because there was no activity, figured, okay, we can't sell the house. So, you know, you know, they decided to uh, to stay there. How did how did this change your life, if at all, Bill? Once you you wrote this book, you you and you came away a believer that all of this 
paranormal activity, this poltergeist activity, uh, you know, these demonic-sounding voices uh, coming out of the cat, perhaps. I mean, how did that change your life? It must have. Oh, yeah, yeah, boy, I'll tell you, you said it, Richard. Yes, it did uh, change my life. I, I felt kind of bad with how, not how strict, but maybe the way I viewed people who, although I had I had people close to me that had their own experiences, and I didn't think they were lying, but I didn't really know what to make of it, you know, without having any sort of proof or context of it. It's difficult, you know. But uh, it did change my view of the world, and it's a much more magical place for real for me. And uh, it's uh, it's an exciting discovery. Um, so I'm, I'm you know I'm just really happy I'm in the place I am now because um, now I have the eyes of a skeptic, but uh, the realization that there are those true things out there. Bill Hall, I appreciate your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And uh, my website's uh, worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. Also the name of the book, The World's Most Haunted House. Thanks again, Bill. My uh, thanks also to Tim Spreen. Back next week, we'll talk to a doctor who says there is no real connection between high cholesterol and heart disease. I know, that's incendiary stuff. We'll talk to him about it. Back with more next week. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Good night.